You're listening to Give Me the Bible with Len. Today's topic is entitled, What to Do. Hello my radio friends. Welcome to today's program where we will examine a very important topic from the Word of God, the Bible. The importance of this topic is highlighted in three of the four Gospel books of the Bible, Matthew, Mark and Luke. It is to do with a particular question and answer. The question was once put to Jesus by a young man who may have been a prince. He was rich and obviously an honest and law-abiding person. His question was, What good thing must I do to get eternal life? You'd be surprised at the answers that different religions around the world give. So, before getting on to what Jesus said, I'd like to share with you what a number of Christian religious groups say. Firstly, the Anglicans, or Episcopalians as they are known in the US. They say, We are accounted righteous before God only on the merit of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ by faith, and not for our own works or deservings. Wherefore, that we are justified by faith only. Secondly, the Assemblies of God. They say salvation is received through repentance toward God and faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, being justified by grace through faith, man becomes an heir of God according to the hope of eternal life. Baptists hold a similar view. They say salvation involves the redemption of the whole man and is offered freely to all who accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour, who, by his own blood, obtained eternal redemption for the believer. There is no salvation apart from personal faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. Lutherans have long held much the same idea. They say faith in Christ is the only way for men to obtain personal reconciliation with God, that is, forgiveness of sins. Methodists and the Uniting Church teach much the same. They say we are accounted righteous before God only for the merit of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ by faith and not for our own works or deservings. Wherefore, that we are justified by faith only. Presbyterians believe and teach similarly. They say Presbyterians believe God has offered us salvation because of God's loving nature. It is not a right or a privilege to be earned by being good enough. We are all saved solely by the grace of God. Out of the greatest possible love and compassion, God reached out to us 
and redeemed us through Jesus Christ, the only one who was ever without sin. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, God triumphed over sin. So far there is agreement among these religious groups. The Catholics have a different teaching. Here's what they say. Salvation is received by virtue of the sacrament of baptism. It may be lost by mortal sin and may be regained by penance. If we consider what other mainstream non-Protestant religions teach, these are radically different ideas. And I'll share with you just three of these religious groups' teachings about salvation. The first is Hinduism. Most Hindus worship one being of ultimate oneness, that's Brahman, through infinite representations of gods and goddesses. These various deities become incarnate within idols, temples, gurus, rivers, animals, etc. Hindus believe their position in this present life was determined by their actions in a previous life. Hinduism therefore provides a possible explanation for suffering and evil in this life. If a person's behaviour before was evil, they might justifiably experience tremendous hardships in this life. Pain, disease, poverty or disaster, like a flood, is deserved by that person because of their own evil actions, usually what they regard from a previous lifetime. A Hindu's goal is to become free from the law of karma, to be free from continuous reincarnations. Only the soul matters which one day will be free of the cycle of rebirths and be at rest. Hinduism lets a person choose how to work towards spiritual perfection. There are three possible ways to end the cycle of karma. Firstly, to be lovingly devoted to any of the Hindu deities. Secondly, to grow in knowledge through meditation of Brahman and to realise that circumstances in life are not real, that selfhood is an illusion and only Brahman is real. And the third way to be free of the law of karma is to be dedicated to various religious ceremonies and rites. Well, the second of these types of groups is the New Agers, New Age spirituality promotes the development of the person's own power or divinity. When referring to a deity, a follower of this type of spirituality is not talking about a transcendent personal God who created the universe, but is referring to a higher consciousness within themselves. A person pursuing spiritual development would see themselves as a deity. In other words, they see themselves as a god. In fact, everything that the person sees, hears, feels or imagines 
is to be considered divine. The earth is viewed as the source of all spirituality and has its own intelligence, emotions and deity. But superseding all is self. Self is the originator, controller and power over all. There is no reality outside of what the person determines. New Age teaches Eastern mysticism and spiritual, metaphysical and psychic techniques such as breathing exercises, chanting, drumming, meditating to develop an altered consciousness and one's own divinity. A person becoming a god, they say, creates their own reality. Now, the Buddhists of the last group, they say we do not worship any gods or god. People outside of Buddhism often think that Buddhists worship the Buddha. However, the Buddha never claimed to be divine, but rather he is viewed by Buddhists as having attained what they are also striving to attain, which is spiritual enlightenment, and with it, freedom from the continuous cycle of life and death. Most Buddhists believe a person has countless rebirths, which inevitably include suffering. A Buddhist seeks to end these rebirths, a bit like the Hindus. Buddhists believe it is a person's cravings, aversion and delusion that causes these rebirths. Therefore, the goal of a Buddhist is to purify one's heart and to let go of all yearnings towards sensual desires and the attachment to oneself. Buddhists follow a list of religious principles and adhere to personal restraint, fasting and very dedicated meditation. When a Buddhist meditates, it is not the same as praying or focusing on a god. It is more of self-discipline. Through practiced meditation, a person may reach nirvana, the blowing out of the flame of desire. Buddhism provides something that is true of most religions. Disciplines, values and directives that a person may want to live by. Now we could go on examining the claims of various groups and their teachings in looking for an answer to the question put to Jesus. But it is more important for us to know what the Bible has to say. Most Protestant religious groups hold a common belief about how to be saved. Summarised, the way to be saved involves believing that Jesus Christ, who is God, who came to take the punishment of human beings, that human beings deserve, rather, because of their sins. By accepting him as our divine substitute and confessing our sins, we 
only through him may be given eternal life. There are plenty of statements in the Bible to support this teaching. One such is John 3.16, which says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. In Acts chapter 8, is recorded the events surrounding the miraculous deliverance of Paul and Silas when they were imprisoned in the Roman garrison town of Philippi. Instead of running for their lives when the prison shook during what was an earthquake, Paul and Silas's shackles fell off, but they remained in prison. The jailer, frantic that he might be killed by the Roman authorities for losing custody of the prisoners, was about to commit suicide when Paul and Silas shouted aloud, Don't harm yourself! We are all here! The jailer, impressed with the two godly men in his care, came and asked the very question we're dealing with in this program. He asked, and this is verse 30, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Paul and Silas then replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Now, I want to give you one more reference. This was the statement of Jesus as he was commissioning his disciples just prior to his ascension back to heaven. I'm reading from Mark 16, verses 15 and 16, where Jesus instructed, Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. So far, there are two things that have become obvious about how someone is to be saved. They are, firstly, to believe that Jesus is your Saviour. That entails faith to accept God's grace with a willingness to confess and forsake your sins and then to live a righteous life. The second requirement is to be baptised. Now, that begs another question. If a person believes but is not baptised, can they be saved? Well, the short answer is yes. And I'm going to go on with this a little bit later after the break. I'm sinking deep in sin Far from the peaceful shore Very deeply stained within Sinking to rise no more but the master of the sea Heard my despair and cry From the waters lifted me Now safe am I Love lifted me Love lifted me When nothing else could help Love lifted me 
Love lifted me, love lifted me When nothing else could help Love lifted me All my heart to Him I give Ever to Him I'll cling In His blessed presence live Ever His praises sing Love so mighty and so true Marries my soul's best songs Faithful loving service to To Him belongs Love lifted me Love lifted me When nothing else could help Love lifted me Love lifted me Love lifted me When nothing else could help Love lifted me Love lifted me Love lifted me When nothing else could help Love lifted me Love lifted me Love lifted me When nothing else could help Love lifted me Just before the break, I asked this question. Can a person be saved or uh, if they're not baptized, although they believe? And the answer is yes. The thief on the cross who accepted Jesus as his saviour was promised eternal life, although he never had the opportunity to be baptized. However, under ordinary circumstances, a new believer is to be baptized. As Jesus was commissioning his disciples just before he went back to heaven, he said, as is recorded in Matthew twenty-eight, nineteen, and 20, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Baptism is a public witness that someone has accepted salvation through Jesus. Baptism by immersion was practiced in the time when Jesus walked the earth and was practiced by the apostles and is still practiced today. Baptism doesn't save anyone, but through it the person demonstrates that he or she has chosen to follow the Lord. Now back to the original question, which was, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? That question was asked of the Apostle Peter as he preached to the assembled crowd on the day of Pentecost. The people were convicted of their sins and that Jesus was indeed the Christ. The Bible reference to this occasion is Acts chapter 2, verses 37 and 38. Here is what it says. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, 
Brothers, what must we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And the verse continues, but I've shared with you the relevant part. As a result, about 3,000 people were baptized that day. So apart from believing, the Bible shows that it is also important to be baptized. It's pretty easy, isn't it? You don't have to pay a lot of money. You don't have to do any great deeds to make yourself suffer, to be a hermit or to take a vow of silence for one year. Salvation is almost too good to be true. Is that all there is? Well, let's go back to Luke chapter 18, verse 18, where the rich young man approached Jesus and asked him, Good Master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? How did Jesus reply? He first pointed out the need to obey God's commandments. The young man replied that he had kept the commandments since he'd been a boy. Then Jesus pointed out that he needed to go beyond that and forsake the pleasurable life and the wealth that he enjoyed, give it to the poor, and then follow him as his disciple. The young man was unwilling to do that and left sorrowful. Now we come to the fourth time. The same question was asked about what we must do. This question was also put to Jesus, but this time the questioner was a Jewish lawyer. And we can read what happened in Luke 10, verses 25 to 28. Here's what it says. On one occasion... An expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. For the second time, Jesus said that it was essential to keep the law. What law? Here, in answer to the lawyer's question and in response to the rich young man's question, Jesus was referring to the Ten Commandments, God's law. There is a widespread, ridiculous, totally false notion that the Ten Commandments were abolished at the crucifixion of Christ. That notion is openly taught in some churches. Preachers and teachers, and anyone for that matter who teaches the abolition of the Ten Commandments, are liars. They are false prophets and are not authentic teachers of the Word of God. The Ten Commandments are the guide and measuring stick God uses to judge good and evil. It's like this.
Let's say you want to build a house, but you have no tape measure or blueprint to work with. So you have to guess all the sizes of the materials you use. What sort of house would you get? It would all be higgledy-piggledy and would be condemned because it would not be fit for habitation. In a spiritual sense, the law is the blueprint, the measuring tape needed to find out if your actions are good or bad. Another example. Let's say you're stopped by the police. What is it that determines if you are guilty or not guilty of an offence? Of course, it's the law. But don't get this wrong. God's law does not save you. Its function is to be a guideline, a blueprint, a tape measure, a standard to show you how to live and how you're measuring up to God's standards. To accept salvation through Christ requires more than mere acceptance. It requires living a righteous life, and your actions measured by God's commandments determine whether you are righteous or unrighteous. That famous religious author E.G. White has written, It is unsafe to trust to feelings or impressions. These are unreliable guides. God's law is the only correct standard of holiness. It is by this law that character is to be judged. If any inquirer after salvation were to ask, What must I do to inherit eternal life? Modern teachers of salvation would answer, Only believe that Jesus saves you. But when Christ was asked this question, he said, What is written in the law? How readest thou? No value is attached to a mere profession of faith in Christ. Only the love which is shown by works or actions is counted genuine. My friends, don't you be fooled. There are steps to salvation. The first is to accept Christ as your Saviour. The second is to be baptised. And the third is to obey God's expressed will, his law. Then one has to put the precepts of law into action by treating others with respect and kindness. In some cases, like the thief on the cross, some may only have opportunity to to reach step one toward salvation, but there are other steps to be taken. It's not hard. With the Holy Spirit guiding you in your life, you can do it. Well, we have to stop for today. May God bless you, my friends as you give consideration to what I've just shared with you today.